Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 410 with Doug Hall. Doug is a master inventor who's figured out a whole lot when it comes to what it takes to effectively identify and select and really implement great ideas or find, filter, and fast track, as he likes to say. So you'll learn, one, an equation that predicts the quantity of ideas generated, two, how fear impedes the creation of ideas, and three, how to fast track ideas through a learning mindset. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F410. Now here's Doug's story. Doug Hall is an inventor, researcher, educator, and craft whiskey maker. He's the founder of the Eureka Ranch Innovation Engineering Institute and the Brain Brew Custom Whiskey. He's been named one of America's top innovation experts by Inc. Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Daylight NBC, CNBC, CIO Magazine, and the CBC. His book, Jumpstart Your Business Brain, was named one of the 100 best business books of all time by 1-800-CEO-READ. Big thanks to Doug for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here's Doug. Doug, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your experiences and, and tips when it comes to creativity and innovation. But first, I want to hear about an adventure you took to the North Pole, not Santa Claus, <laughs> but the real North Pole. What's the scoop? Well, yeah, okay. Make sure people understand this. There is no barber pole like you saw on Bugs Bunny at the pole. It's an imaginary place that you can only tell by GPS. So you, you spend <laughs> days traveling to get to a place that looks just like every other place you, you've been <laughs> for, for weeks. A number of years ago, I got this idea to join an expedition that was recreating Admiral Perry's last dash to the pole. And I'm a big fan of Admiral Perry. There's a hierarchy of people on the trip. You know, there's people that have done Everest in this. And in fact, it's called the horizontal Everest, the, the pole is. And you do a training trip where you go through all this stuff and, and everybody kind of gets their job. I was one of the tender feet, as they say. Uh, in fact, I did a book called North Pole Tenderfoot that would tell the story about this. But I was a tenderfoot. I didn't even get to be cook. I, I was the pot washer, which let me oh. tell you, at 40 below, pot washer is, is as low as it gets on the totem pole. But I was just excited to be able to get on the expedition. And so in typical fashion, I kind of went over the top and, you know, we do work with 
top corporations around the world. I've been doing it for many, many years. And so I called in a whole lot of friends and we raised, I don't know, a million dollars or some, some crazy amount of money for a charity focused on helping parents inspire their kids. And it was in the early days of the internet. And so we had all these students and we had classes for them and it was just a ton of fun. And it was, it's an incredible experience. The North Pole is, it's unbelievable. I mean, the beauty and the sun's up nonstop and you'd think it's kind of like this white on white thing. Well, it's not because you've got all these blues and these whites and the shades and it's unbelievable. Now in a whiteout, it's, you can't see anything and it's, it's pretty much messes with your head, but they called it. Tanarsic, the Arctic devil gets in your head. And and mm. I went through it a couple of times. Folks I was with went through it a couple of times where you just basically lose it. But as Paul Shirky, who led the expedition from up in Ely, Minnesota, Wintergreen Lodge says, he says, you know, it feels so good when you stop. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you go, Jesus, that's pretty weird. Why are you doing it? Because it feels so good when you stop. But there is a lot of truth to it because when you have pushed yourself, and whatever it may be, whether it's mountain climbing or biking or people that are into extended racing, when you push your physical body far beyond, you get to reasonable, you get to unreasonable, you get to, I'm going to die, you get to, this is ridiculous, and you can keep going. It gives you a strength that when you're sitting there in your cubicle or in this room looking at stupid PowerPoints and they're telling you the world's ending, you go, I ain't seen, you ain't seen nothing until you've gone for a swim at 40 below zero. You know, you just don't even have any idea. So there is a level setting. There is a great gift of the Arctic or, or any of those things. I'm not just saying the Arctic, that when you're willing to push yourself, it gives you that sense that no matter what it is, you can do it. You can do it because you've seen worse. You've seen worse. Yeah. Well, it's funny as, as you were sharing that notion, it feels so good when you stop and, and mentioning Ely, Minnesota, I'm reminded of a, a Boundary Waters canoe trip I took, which took us through Ely, Minnesota along the way. And uh, it was at times, it's just like, what are we doing? You've got these gigantic <laughs> packs of 50 plus pounds uh, on front and back of you. So hundred total pounds and a canoe above your head. And you're just walking that way for a mile. <laughs> and bugs. Yeah. Bugs that'll carry you away. <laughs> I remember the, the canoes above our head, we're walking and then the, the branches like are scratching the canoe and it sounds like an alien screaming, like it's round sound in your ears. <laughs> like, what, what did we sign up for? But it really did. It felt amazing when we sat down. It's like, oh, now we're just going to hang out with a campfire and, and eat some food. And it was glorious. Ely is the end of the road. It's the end of the road. The road ends at Ely, <laughs> you know, and it really is. But the Boundary Waters are glorious. You haven't lived until you've gone dog sledding up there in February. That's where we went, did training trips. I laugh at all this talk about the border, wherever you feel, I don't really care, but they talk about the border and it's like in the boundary waters. Oh, you're in Canada. Okay. No, now you're in the U S now right. you're in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever, you know? Well, absolutely. Well, so tell us, you know, what is the Eureka Ranch all about? Well, we're inventors. Uh, we're professional inventors. And I started it back in 86. I've been doing it a long time. And helping people open up their minds to, you know, the slogan, I guess, is find, filter, and fast-track big ideas. And people get caught, and if you don't innovate, you die. And mm. But it can be hard to shake it up. And so we've historically been the go-to people. I mean, I'm talking Nike, Walt Disney, America's big, big companies. When they have a really big problem, they come to us to invent a breakthrough, and it's usually a patentable breakthrough or service or system and, you know, crazy stuff like that. 
And that's what we've did for many, many years until about five years ago, 10 years we started, but really five years we got serious about it. I got to a point in life where I said, you know, it's really cool that I can invent this stuff, but wouldn't it be even cooler if I could teach other people how to do it? And so we created this new field of academic study called innovation engineering, where we teach people how to find, filter, and fast track. And it's, you know, it's great to come up with a cool idea. It's awesome. That, I mean, that eureka moment, to say the use of phrase, is awesome. But to inspire and educate and to teach someone else to do it, I mean, it's a hundred X. It's not even close. I mean, it's so cool when you can, people can believe they can. It's amazing. That is cool. Yeah. Well, so I want to dig into, so just where do you start with that? So you unpack some of this in, in your book, Driving Eureka, you know, but would you say that there is, uh, you've got those Fs there. Could you walk us through that? Is, is that the best sort of point of entry? Yeah, that'll work because that's basically the element. And, and people have different things in the head. In fact, I was talking with Maggie Nichols, who who's the CEO of the ranch just before we got on. And she was talking about, she just had a conversation with with a client from a big company. And she was talking about how we're going to work with her people and we'll have people there. And she says, I got the feeling that in this case, it was a gentleman. He didn't believe his people could do it, that they could create an idea. Hmm. He didn't believe. And at its most fundamental, I think people don't think that they can create ideas. But then you ask them the next question, which is, well, what's your system for creating ideas? In other words, your company has accounting practices. What's your, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, is it just, you know, you get on the rooftop in a lotus position and wait for lightning to hit? I mean, you know, what do you do? How do ideas get created? What, what's your, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And so they don't have a system for finding ideas. They don't have a system for doing it. And there's methodical ways that you can go through to do it. But then when you have the idea, so first off, they go, uh, we don't have any ideas. Then you get the ideas and then they go into a panic. They go, well, how am I going to figure out which one to do? I'm like, well, I mean, you know, we can do the math, figure out how much they're going to sell and do some research. Now, how am I going to figure out? And so they don't actually trust themselves. What they're really saying is they don't trust themselves to pick the right idea. And so we've built systems and there's, in fact, a whole college course on that exact subject, just like there is on creating ideas. And so now they've picked the idea. Now they go, OK, now I got the real problem. How am I going to make it happen? Because my organization has never done anything like this. And that's the big difference from this book, Driving Eureka, versus my earlier book. So this is my seventh book. A lot of my books, Jumpstart Your Brain, were about the creating of ideas or Jumpstart Your Business Brain, creating and evaluating ideas, did that. This book takes you from front to back. And it's about how do I make the ideas happen so that I don't kill them in the process? And that fast tracking is by far the hardest part of the whole thing. But you can't even have that conversation when you don't have an idea to begin with. So it's like you peel back the onion. They say, well, I need an idea. Then you give them the idea and they go, now I can't pick it. Okay, now I, pick, now I can't do it. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's why we said it. And, and, and that's really the reality. And it's not that people can't do it. It's just they've never been taught. They've never been taught. Intriguing. Well, so I'd love it that let's let's hear a little bit about each of them. You know, what are your your favorite you know pro tips, best practices associated with the finding, and then the filtering, and then the fast tracking? I'm not going to tell you my tips because you know it's like opinions. Everybody's got them, right? Let me talk to you about data because all of the things that we teach, and the reason we were able to get this as a new field of academic study and get it accredited and teach it on campuses, and we're about to expand to a whole lot more colleges, and you can get degrees in it, is we had data. In the popular press world, you can do anything you want, but 
the universities should get peer review in that. So from a data perspective to create ideas, we found that this 6,000 teams were evaluated in the process of inventing ideas. I'm enmeshed in the story now, and I want to get fully oriented. So where are these 6,000 teams from, and where, what are they doing? So these were 6,000 teams over three years from companies small, medium, and large. I funded wow. a study, and I had two PhDs and myself. I've gotten an honorary doctorate, a couple of honorary doctorates because of this research, but you know, I don't have, have like a real one. I graduated with a two-point something in chemical engineering. So, But what we did is, is we measured the teams in the act of creating ideas. Every 40 minutes, we would ask them a series of questions, every 40 minutes. And then what they would create ideas, we would take the ideas, take the names off them, type them up, and we would score them on the quality of ideas they were. And we just did this over and over and over and over again. And we had this huge list of questions. And I got them to answer the questions. They would answer sometimes before they came, they would answer 200 questions. And the only way I got away with it is I said, if you don't answer it, it could mess up the project. <laughs> Wait, I, I'm wondering, yeah, how do you get this compliance from these people? Oh, like, what, they don't owe you they're anything. Afraid, what? They're afraid they're going to get fired. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's Innovation is important to us here. Don't, don't disappoint Doug. That's There's some right. more alliteration for you. Well, my boss, you know, so they would answer the questions. And so we studied it. And what we found is that the creation of what we call meaningfully unique ideas comes from stimulus, sights, sounds, smells, patent things, research data, ideas are feats of association. So you have a, these two pieces of stimulus, you put them together and you create a new idea. Okay. So you had to feed the brain. So any two, huh? Yeah. I mean, and there's more science to it. I mean, I'm simplifying it for the purposes here. There's actually six areas that you can do it. And, we, and there's a real science to this. But basically, ideas are feats of association. So you have to bring the right stimulus in the room and that will cause a reaction. Now, that reaction is dependent on our worldview, how we look at the world, what we call it diversity. And so the more you have people who look at the world differently, who would see that same stimulus, but see it from a different direction, in a different way, it's not additive, it's not multiplicative, it's literally an exponential kick in the number of ideas that are invented, and high quality ideas. So stimulus and diversity by bringing people that look at the world different than you do. Oh, I love this. Just so our listeners really will go here. What is the the rough citation that we can hunt down to link in the show notes for, for some of this goodness? It's all in my books. It's all in the books. The stuff that we're talking about right now, this is in Jumpstart Your Business Brain. It's all the studies are explained. Everything's explained right in there. Okay. So diversity, exponential kick. I'm right with you. And, and so that's the potential, but there's a gating for it. There's a negative. And this took us a long time to, to figure out. In fact, I wrote a book and I had to do a new edition to correct it because I was wrong. Because what we found truly was the issue was not a positive, but it was a negative, which was it's divided by the fear. And the greater our fear, you have stimulus and diversity in the numerator, and then at the bottom, you've got fear. As fear goes up, the number of big ideas goes down. And it was amazing. As their fear levels went up, which, by the way, I've been, I've been tracking since the 90s. I've been tracking. We measure every team, and we measure the people. We call it our raw material as to where their heads are at. And the fear levels have gone up and up and up. And that's why it's getting harder and harder and harder to do big ideas. It is much harder today than it was 10 years ago, and I have the data to prove it. Hmm. Because people are scared to death that they're going to look stupid, that they're going to be dumb. You know, I'm a no whining guy, so there's no whining about it. We've had to adapt and change our systems over and over and over again to account for the fact that the people coming in are 
not in a good place. It, it's pretty ugly out there as an employee. Well, Doug, tell me what's behind this increase in fear. Uh, well, some of it's the economy. If you track it, what happens is every time there's been a big dip in the stock market, 2000, you know, the different times when it's dropped, it jolts up again. And I was with some government people in D.C. We were working with the Department of Commerce on some stuff. And I showed them my chart and they pulled out a chart which involved investors' confidence dimensions and retirement was also there. And they said what's happening is their hypothesis was like before 2000, the stock market was booming. It was going crazy. And then when it drops, everybody looks up and says, oh, my God, I'm not going to have enough money for retirement. And they become more conservative. They pull back in because they don't want to mess up. You know, it's the old, uh, I got five years before I retire, so I don't want to do something that's going to get me in trouble. So they pull back not just with their investment. So it's a boomer thing. It's a boomer thing. It really, really, I think, is is a very big baby boomer thing, as, as, as me being one of them, who they're just playing not to lose instead of playing to win, many of them are. And, and, and I understand it. I mean, you know, they're, they're concerned. They're concerned. Let me make sure I'm capturing everything you're saying. This is so fascinating. So that investment chart, that was pointing to their their investment behavior? Their courage. Yeah, their, their courage. Their courage on investments just dropped. I see. And you're seeing the exact same thing in terms... I'm seeing the fear drop, mm-hmm. and we laid them. And they weren't perfect, but it was like, you know, it was fascinating that they're, uh, you know, you're sitting in a room, you're, you know, the office, your boss, boss has got a problem. He says, okay, let's get everybody in the conference room. He says, anybody got any ideas? And we call this the brain draining or the suck method of creativity. And nobody's got anything. He says, see, I told you they weren't very creative. Well, for Christ's sakes, you know, with a gun to your head, you know, it's kind of hard to think big thoughts. Well, yeah, the scene that you're painting there in terms of saying, all right, anybody got any good ideas? It's already <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure if I say something, you're, you're going to not embrace it with uh, delight. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we've had to go to a, a long pace. But what we find is that when you teach people, so we have a fundamentals course that we teach and they can take it there, they can take it online. And when you teach them, it's like their eyes open up and they go, oh my God, that is how ideas happen. And we show them how to do it. And, and then they believe they can. And, and you know, the interesting thing about this is, as I'm saying this, I can see in the thought balloons, because I've been, I'm old and I've been doing this for a long time, is that people are thinking that I'm just talking about ideas at the start. But the truth is that's only 10% of what I'm talking about. Because the problem we found, remember I said in the fast track it to market problem, mm-hmm. the reason for that problem is you have to do problem solving. Because when you try to put the thing together, it doesn't work like you thought. The service doesn't work like you thought. There's, there's financial, the budget doesn't work. And so you have to keep pivoting and problem solving. And we have a tendency to think it's the Big Bang. If I just have a big idea and hand it to people, a miracle can happen. That's not what the problem is. 90% of it is in development, which is having the courage and confidence to pivot, adjust, and adapt as you run into problems. The data says, this is amazing. When an idea goes into development, so they've done all this work to get this idea, and then the idea comes out. I have two separate studies that show, and one was from a Fortune 20 company, they valued what the idea was worth due to sales forecast at the beginning and at the end of their development process. On average, they lost half the value during the development process. I told them, I said, see, your development's like hospice. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you're the killing zone. <laughs> and the chief technology officer, she did not think that was a funny joke. But I said, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, start with ideas that are twice as good at the start because so, you know you're only going to kill half of it? I mean, it's nuts. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. 
But we think that we can just do it. And when you're doing something that's truly new, that's going to make a real difference, you have to keep reinventing. And that's why you have to enable innovation within everybody, because the product supply person, the finance person, the production, everybody's going to have to be doing it, which is the reason why small businesses are oftentimes much more successful with innovation than big companies. Well, well, this is fascinating stuff. So I'd love to hear your take then. So fear has increased. And so how are you counteracting it? So our work is all based off of the work of Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Are you familiar with Deming? Oh, right. Yeah. Quality and such. Yeah. He's the guy went to Japan after World War II. He came back to the U.S., worked at National Corp. My dad was there. And that's when I learned about it. And he says 94% of the problems the system, 6% is the worker. And so our work I mean, innovation engineering, the subtitle is system-driven innovation, is to give people work systems and tools to enable them. So rather than going in and trying to tell a person, buck up, man, have courage, have courage. You know, they're like, yeah, whatever. And that'll last me about 10 minutes. Instead, what we do is we give them systems to enable them to do rapid research, or we call it fail fast, fail cheap, quantitative research. So they can test things and they can test option A, option B, and option C. We give them systems to allow them to improve their ideas, artificial intelligence systems that literally will read a description of their idea and give them advice to make it better. If you were going into war and you were just walking out with a slingshot, you would probably wouldn't have a lot of courage. But if you've got the tools and the systems around you and the equipment and the right training to do it, then you can have a lot more confidence. It's the same thing here. People are sent into battle to create ideas with nothing. And by changing the systems around them, the systems for research, systems for collaboration, systems for project management, on and on and on, and approaching it as it's not the person that's the problem, it's the system, total transformation. That's the only way we found to give them genuine courage, not just motivational crap, you know? Now, Doug, how can I get my hands on some AI that's going to tell me how to improve my idea? That sounds like fun. So what we did is, I'm a big quantitative tester, and uh, we've tested over 25,000 ideas. I said I'm old. And we did this ridiculous content analysis to identify them. And I have these incredible rocket scientists, young people that work for me, who took all of the information on what had happened and had the computer do machine learning and read the thing and literally come up with a way to to do it. And it's in the software package that students get as part of the courses um, that they're doing. But if I wanted to use it, how can I do that? We'd have to get you to take the course. Okay. How can I take the course? Well, I'll send you a thing so that you can do it. Is it available for, for the public to... Yes, it is. If you go to EurekaRanch.com, it's there for you to sign up for. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, so we talked about the finding. Can we hear a little bit about the filtering? What we found as we started to work on this is we had to think about this from the perspective of the end user. We tend to look at ideas from our perspective with regards to all the things that we're scared about, as opposed to what's in it for that end customer. And by customer, it could be the external person, or if it's a system innovation, say you're changing the way you manufacture something or do something within your organization, then it may be another department or other group of people. And so when we gave structure to it, what we found was, and this came out of some of the analysis of, of, the, of the concepts of what made ideas work or not work, is there was a pretty simple premise, which is you start with who's the customer and what's their problem, and then what are you going to promise them to address their problem, and then what's the proof that you can do the promise to solve their problem? And so 
problem, promise, proof, it's that simple. Doug, you're a master of alliteration. Well, because it becomes memorable. It's all to try to drive it, because we want to get it into the people. We don't want them memorizing it. But if you start from that perspective, you get people driven to a perspective. And we know that with gazillion things, and a lot of them are in the Driving Eureka book. Like, for example, if you are specific with your promise, so you say it'll make you twice as fast, or it'll cut healing time in half, or you put a number in it. Your odds of success when you do that innovation go up some 52%. Not not 5 or 10%, 52%. And we've got all kinds of findings like that that we we give people. So now they've got an ability. In fact, sometimes clients complain. They say, well, we get a lot of high scores. I say, well, that's because you're following what you were taught. And marketing is... It's not magic. You know, it's, it's pretty simple. People are pretty selfish. They want to know what's in it for them, and they want to know proof that you're going to do it. Here's my problem. What are you going to do for me? How do I know it's going to work? And that's it. Okay. And so when you're using that from a filtering perspective, I guess I'm imagining, okay, I got 100 ideas. What the heck do I do? What, what's really worth pursuing? Uh, how would I enact the problem, promise, proof concept? I guess in some ways, I don't quite know how good my solution is until I've really prototyped it. That's why you have to do research. So you have to write it up first in that structure, because now when it's in that structure, a customer can give you their perception of what they think they would do. That written, we call it a concept, that written concept is your first prototype. Okay. And assuming they like that, then you might make a physical, a works-like prototype, and they might test that, and you can see that. But you start off with the cheapest prototype in the world, which is just a collection of words. Mm -hmm. And so by getting it in that format, Now the customer can evaluate it and then give you data. And we've got a whole pile of data systems. And it's so fast and cheap these days to do the testing. It's really, really easy to do it. Again, but these are systems that if you're not familiar with, you know, as they say, read the book. You know, I mean, there are ways to do this. And you got to learn how to do this. And so you can start to evaluate ideas and you can know what it is. You can even use that data to forecast what kind of impact it's going to have, whether it's how much it's going to save or how much it's going to, how much more you're going to sell or whatever it might be. And so could you maybe just give an, ex- an example of, okay, uh, we had an idea and we're going to write write it out in terms of problem, promise, proof. And then and what happens when we're presenting that to people? So what you do is you put the idea together, you'd write it up and you can test it a bunch of different ways. You can test it with on the internet. You can do it in about an hour. Usually you can get a statistical sample to be able to do that. It costs you maybe $200 to do it. You can do it in person. So I've got a, a crazy whiskey company. We make whiskey really fast. We have the time compression approach, and, and we can make uh, luxury whiskeys in about 40 minutes. And so we'll make a product. We might take it out to a bar, and we'd have people taste it and see how likely they are to buy it, how new and different it is, aftertaste, taste, what they think of it. Then we take those results, and we turn around, flip it, do it again. Do it again, do it again, do it again until we get it great. That's cool. Then for the the problem, promise, proof, what would some of the, the sentences be associated with that whiskey? So the whiskey would be, does it frustrate you that great, super smooth whiskey costs a ridiculous amount of money? Yes, Doug, I'm outraged. Well, now for the price of a premium whiskey, you can get luxury whiskey taste. And the reason you can do that is because our new time compression technology replicates seasons of barrel aging, doing it in minutes instead of dozens of years. Okay. And so you want to get a sense then, but put that in front of a lot of people if they say, okay, well, whatever, versus, whoa, I want it now is sort of what you're gauging. Yeah. And so people went nuts. And so then, so let me just show you how, how this evolved. 
they thought that was really cool, right? And so then we started to play with it and we said, okay, so maybe we can sell a product at $35. That's a great price. But I said, what would it take to make it so that at $50, they would go, that's still a great deal. And we tried a whole lot of different things and come to find out we stumbled into this. The technology allows us to make whiskey one bottle at a time. So truly do custom whiskey. And so people can come to a tasting and we can literally make their personal whiskey. And I said, it's $50. They said, it's a deal to have their own whiskey. So, so we've got mass market products we sell at 35 and custom whiskey where you come and literally go through and craft your own personal whiskey. You can use your own wood. You can use an old world or a new world. You can mix your grains together and you can literally make your own personal whiskey. And people you know, kind of went nuts. And the, and the group that was in the research, you can see kind of different comments and different things. And the group that went the most crazy about it Weddings. Mm, okay. People wanting to have their own whiskey for their wedding. And uh, in fact, we got people flying to Cincinnati. Say, Can I just make my own whiskey for my wedding? I got to have my own whiskey for my wedding. <laughs> That's cool. All right. Well, also, now let's talk about the fast tracking here. So you say there are some holdups and uh, hospice, the, the value gets cut in half. How do we prevent that from happening? Okay. So the first thing is you got to embrace a learning mindset. And a cycle of learning. And Deming talked about plan, do, study, act. Not check, but study. There's a difference. But he was very big about cycles of learning. You you have, here's what you're trying to do, the plan, the do, what's your hypothesis. The study is, did it work or did it not? Achieve the goal and why? And then act, what are you going to do? And most of the time you go around again. And so the key is you've got to build a culture where these rapid plan, do, study, act, or fail, fast, fail, cheap cycles can be done with quantitative data and not done in months, not done in weeks, but in days or hours. And if you're able to do those rapid cycles, then what happens is the reason why the value goes down is you compromise. You know, you basically give up and compromise. You're saying, you know what, maybe this is only going to work for our consumer segment and not the business segment as well. That's right. As opposed to saying, no, let's rethink it. How could we change the idea to make it really work for all those folks? Mm -hmm. And so that's the iterative process. And so you've got to embrace that cycle of learning mindset of never-ending learning. And But when the idea is locked and it doesn't matter, even though that square peg doesn't fit that round hole and they say, just get a bigger hammer, that's stupid. And sadly, that's what we tend to do now because you're seeing if you change the idea, it's seen as a sign of weakness that you didn't really have confidence in the idea. And, and that's just nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, well, so this is a lot of good stuff here. You know, tell me in terms, uh, you said you didn't want to just give tips because you wanted to give the the hard, scientifically proven, validated suggestions, which I love and I think is excellent. So tell me w within this, are there a couple approaches that there's just a whole lot of great science behind in terms of you're saying, Pete, when you're trying to get creative, innovative, definitely do this and definitely don't do that. Okay, so the first thing you have to do is you really have to agree specifically how you define what an innovation is. All right. Okay. You've really, really got to come up with that definition. And, and in our research is found, we define it, I mentioned it briefly, meaningfully unique, which is how likely somebody is to buy it and how new and different it is. And we actually weight those 60% on purchase and 40% on new and different. And that measure is most predictive. And so when you know that they have to not only like it, but it has to be different than what they've seen before, and you have that clarity, 
that allows you to do the testing, it allows you to do the research, and it gives you an objective measure to go do it. So you've got to agree on a definition. And that's an academic article that went out about that, and, and it's referenced in the Driving Eureka book. You have to have that, okay? So that's what you got to have. you got to have an agreement on what is innovation and what is not so that you're not just debating, oh, I think it's innovative, I think it's, no, no, <laughs> come on, we need a number here. Now, what to not do, what you, you really have to be careful about doing is you can't outsource this. And, and I'm a guy who people come to outsource to, uh -huh. right? and I'm saying it. And so today, in the old days, they would hand me the money, I'd go away, come back, and I'd go, dee -dee, here it is. Now I work with their team because you don't get buy-in. Mm -hmm. That outsourcing, not invented here, will kill any idea. I don't care if you get the Jesus walk on water system, it's going to be dead. You have to enable your team, and they've got to become part of the process. Now, we can bring in expertise, and we can do that kind of stuff, but we got to give your people some education. we got to bring them together, and you got to do it. So if you try to outsource this, it's just going to fail. You may get some shiny thing that you like. It will never ship. Mm -hmm. It's never going to ship. you got to believe in your people, and you got to invest in your people. And I know it's too urgent. I can't just teach. If you want to teach them, we can teach them. They say, nah, I need it's okay, so that's fine. We will teach and we'll put them some top spin so to keep them going. But don't outsource it. You gotta believe in your people. Okay, that's great. Well, those are some some strong do's or don'ts. Tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. The big thing is you gotta believe, folks. This is the best of times. There's a tendency right now, people say, oh my God, this is changing, this is changing. Millennials are this, but this, uh, Gen X is this, boomers are this. No, no, no. The digital world and this planet that we're on right now, the opportunities globally are just amazing, and the technologies enable it. And so best of times, worst of times, it's up to you to decide what that is. I think it's the best of times if you're engaged. And if you're not engaged, then retire. <laughs> Go to the golf course and sit there for a while or something. I don't know what the hell you're going to do. But this is the time. But, but you got to be learning, and you got to get in the game. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I mean, related to that is one of mine is the is a Ben Franklin quote. It'll be carved on my tombstone because it means so much to me. As Franklin said over 200 years ago, up sluggard and waste not life in the grave will be sleeping enough. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, it has to be the whiskey. I mean, 72 cycles in seven days to make the initial discovery. Just yesterday, we made another discovery. As we're managing this interaction between the wood and the alcohol, there's so much more to learn. It's just amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. All right. And how about a favorite book? I'm sitting in my library that has probably over a thousand books in it. And so picking one from the others is quite a challenge. But I would probably say Copthorne McDonald's work. Toward Wisdom, esoteric book, a guy who's passed, but who a lot and who, I mean, so this is amazing. He's a bit of a philosopher, wrote about wisdom. And in one of our computer systems, uh, some of the intelligent systems that can predict successive ideas, reading his philosophy gave us the breakthrough to like double the accuracy of the model. I mean, it was amazing. Just an incredible thinker. Copthorne McDonald Toward Wisdom. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? It, it would be the ThinkStormer. So we've got this uh, new thing that the team has come up with that just blows me away. It's called ThinkStormer, and it's a software that enables individuals, not your team, not your company, but for you, 
to think quicker, faster, smarter. And they've just figured out how to take all the tools that the big companies use and made it so an individual can use it. And we use that as part of the education stuff. And it's just an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Awesome. And how about a favorite habit, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Exercise. Mm -hmm. Intense exercise, two, 300 calories and at a good pace. Every time I'm in exercise mode and I go into it and out of it, but if you want to make your mind work, you got to make your body go. You said two, 300 calories. You mean that's the amount of burn that you're seeking to get from that session? Yeah. So I, you know, use the Apple watch and, and measure active calories and, uh, which is above your staying alive kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And 300 is great for me if I do that, which is kind of an intense 45 minutes for me at my age to do it. 200 minimum. I have to do it. If I don't do it, I swear the mind is better. The mind is better. That's good. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with uh, readers, listeners, clients? When I sign books over the years, be bold and be brave is probably the fundamental. And, and when I write that, I don't mean to tell people that you need to go to the North Pole. I just mean wherever you are, take another step out there. And you know, it's not going to be as bad as you think. And that life's meant mm -hmm. uh, for living. Okay. And Doug, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you send them? Well, I mean, this is your grant site, but DougHall.com. In fact, let's do something special just for the listeners of this. If they go to DougHall.com, dot com slash vip so d-o-u-g at d-o-u-g-h-a-l-l dot com slash vip there's a thing they can sign up for and we've got a one-hour audio summary um, there's also on all the platforms there's a 10-hour audio book you can get that if you're on any of those but there's a one-hour audio summary you can get that for free i've also got an assessment you can take which is based off of a lot of the data i've been talking about about measuring people that literally can show you where you are and it's positive it doesn't beat you up it's all confidential you can do it so if you go to doghall.com you can get all of that stuff excellent and doug do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs up sluggard and waste not life in the grave, we'll be sleeping enough. Mm. I mean, Dr. Franklin had it right. All right. Well, Doug, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, thank you for sharing the goods and good luck in all of your discoveries. Thank you much. Thank you much. It's been fun. You you make it very fun. I do a lot of these, as you would expect in these days, and the professionalism and the whole way you do this, it's appreciated. So I'm just going to say that from my perspective. It's appreciated. I got such a kick out of how Doug described ideas as feats of association, which kind of takes away some of the, the, the mystical, whoa, they just appeared out of nowhere, but really they're uh, feats of association. I find often I get ideas just because I happen to see two things next to each other, or I was just thinking about one thing and then I'm in an environment where it sparks the other thing, which really gives more credence to Doug's formula about the diversity and the stimuli really sparking all kinds of stuff. So that, that gets me thinking about how to proactively feed the brain, get those stimuli going and put them together and see what you can come up with. So I found this quite helpful. I hope you do too, as you are finding filtering and fast tracking more of your own meaningful ideas. The show notes and transcript and links to items we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep410. If you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe to catch our next guest. It is Michelle Tillis Letterman. She is back for her second appearance. And this time we are talking about her book, The Connector's Advantage. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. 
first. Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.